This week is Parshas Toldos, and we pivot from talking about Abraham and Isaac, and now it's about Isaac's children. So Isaac marries Rebecca. For several years, they're barren. And finally, she becomes pregnant with twins, Jacob and Esau, Yaakov and Esau. And they don't exactly follow the same life path. And they have um, uh, skirmishes between the two, eventually culminating in Jacob usurping his father's deathbed blessings and fleeing. That's this week's Parsha. But there's an interesting uh, preamble to the story of the Parsha where it kind of recapitulates what happened last week. And the second verse in the Parsha reads that Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rivka, Rebecca, the daughter of Besuel from Padanaram, from her hometown, the sister of Lavan for a wife. And Rashi's trying to figure out why we already know that Jake, that Isaac married Rebecca. And we already know that Rebecca's dad was Basuel and her brother was, that was already discussed last week. Why is there a need to repeat it again? Well, we're told her father, her brother, and her hometown, all information that we already know. So Rashi tells us something really interesting. Rashi says that it's really trying to tell us about, it's trying to compliment her, trying to tell us about her praise, the praise of Rebecca. Why? Because her father was a sinner, and her brother was a sinner, and she came from a city of sinners, yet she somehow was inoculated. She was free of sin. She didn't learn from their behavior. That's the answer. And that's why, therefore, the, the Torah is trying to praise Rebecca, and therefore it repeats her uh, pedigree, and despite the fact that she has such a uh, problematic upbringing, she was righteous and worthy of marrying into the family of Abraham, marrying Isaac. Now, the question is, how does this really still answer the question? The whole question was, why does the verse need to tell us her backstory? We know that already. So it tells us her backstory to tell us that she is praiseworthy. But the truth is, you know, we already know that, for example, her brother was wicked. We're actually going to meet her brother next week. And her brother is one of the wiliest, cunningest uh, charlatans. Uh, and he's going to cause, he's a, he's a trickster. And he's going to cause tremendous problems to Jacob. And thus, implicitly, we already know that she had to fend with these various influences. But the Maharal gives an answer and he says that perhaps you would think that maybe Rebecca, she was too young when she left her family and she wasn't impressionable. And maybe it's not, it's not praiseworthy that she was inoculated from these bad influences because she wasn't impressionable. She wasn't influenceable yet. And therefore, the Torah points out that it says, no, even though she was impressionable and she could have been influenced, she wasn't. But I think there's, there's another question here. If the Torah wants to tell us Rebecca's praise by telling us that she was exposed to bad influences and she didn't follow their behavior, why do we need to be told that her father was wicked and her brother was wicked and her neighborhood was wicked? All we need to be, to, to, to be told is that she was exposed to all these influences that could have been harmful, yet they weren't. Why is there a need to spell out that her father and her brother and her neighborhood and her why, – why do you have to go into such granular detail? So the Maharal says something very interesting. He says that we know that people are influenced by their surroundings and by the people that they encounter and by their company that they keep. 
But he breaks it down to three different categories. There's three different relationships or relationship types that have effect on a person. Number one, there's people who could be intimidating or fearful. People that are very the relationship is kind of rigid and and and, and it's scary and you're and, and you're awed by someone. And because you're awed by them, you say whatever they want, whatever the however they behave, I'm going to emulate them. That's one kind of relationship that could affect someone both good and bad. Secondly, there's a relationship where you're so enamored by someone. There's adulation. You love them. You respect them. You look up to them. You you just want to – you idolize them. And that's someone that you also want to emulate. Whatever they do, I do. And that's one out of love. And thirdly, there's the society. You know, we're not necessarily aware because we take for granted – the social norms and the societal mores that we are exposed to. It it kind of blends into the world that we live in and we accept it as given. And it's very surprising for us when we find societies in the past, for example, or societies in other parts of the world that don't accept at all a certain baseline that we take for granted. And thus, there's a third element, a third pillar of influence that we encounter in our lives, and that's what's that, that society. And therefore, Rashi's telling us that Rebecca, her father, he was a sinner. He was wicked. He was an idolater. He was a pagan. And you know what? Typically, the children tend to have a fearful relationship with their father. You know, the father is kind of the imposing, fearsome uh, individual in the home. You know, you don't generally hear uh, a father telling a child, you wait till your mom gets home. <laughs> Usually it's the opposite, right? The father is the visage of, of, of the imposing visage. And her father was a sinner. And you would imagine that there's a certain degree of influence that comes along with that. If he's a sinner, she's likely to follow his ways. Yet she didn't. Well, Lavan Laban was her older brother. And anyone who has multiple children knows that at least from an early age, younger children tend to idolize their older brothers. That's just the way it is. And her brother, of course, was very charismatic, yet he was a sinner, and he was a pagan, and he was an idolater. And we find that he was just a very – he was morally corrupt in his behavior. And Rebecca did not learn from her ways. And thirdly, you would imagine Rebecca went to school – and she had friends and she lived in a community where everyone were pagans and the, where they were all idolaters. Yet she did not follow their way. She did not uh, abide and adhere to the standards of the world and the community and the city that she was living in. And thus, we're told that despite the fact that we generally are products of our society and our family, somehow Rebecca managed to not be influenced by the people that she that she she encountered, and thus, so what does that mean about her? It means that she was an independent person, just like Abraham. Abraham also grew up on a little island. He was submerged and surrounded by people whose ideas and whose life and whose behavior and whose morals and whose uh, tenets of of belief vastly uh, differed from what he developed. He was a beacon, a, a ray of monotheism in a sea of paganism. 
How did he do that? What characteristic did he have that allowed him to flourish despite these challenging conditions? And the answer is, is that he was an independent person. He managed to wall himself off from all those influences around her, around him. Uh, similarly, Rebecca, she somehow, she had the intestinal fortitude and independent resolve to chart her own path of righteousness in the world. She was her own person. She was an independent, someone who was so resolute in their, in her convictions, she was able to withstand the onslaught from without. And therefore, it's worthy for the Torah to dedicate a whole verse to tell us about her character, because this is almost a defining characteristic of the Jewish people. You know, we, we are pariahs sometimes. We're outcasts sometimes. We have ideas, certainly historically. Our ideas were so radical. We think today of the Eastern religions as being exotic, as being uh, captivating, as being uh, esoteric. And the truth is, if you fast forward or you reverse back 2,000 years, this idea that there's one invisible God that has all the power levers, that idea was so radical. It was so out there. Now it's been accepted basically universally. If there is a God, there is, it's not some figurine you put in the corner of your room. That's been accepted. Some people may question whether there is or there isn't, but, but the definitions, the terminology, uh, the nomenclature of faith is what we, what we talk, been talking about for thousands of years. But when Abraham and Rebecca and all these characters of Genesis, when they emerge, they're totally out there. And what they're doing is they're building the Jewish people. And the Jewish people are going to have to withstand thousands of years of conflict with our neighbors. And that's the, 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 the most basic characteristic of, of, of Jewish history is the fact that we don't always get along with people that, we're, that are around, that we, that are, we are surrounded with. What is this characteristic that is going to allow us to withstand and have the wherewithal to uphold what we believe despite, despite the fact that we're surrounded by people who ridicule us? It's what Rebecca is, uh, what she's exhibiting over here and in her youth. I want to share a Mishnah in the end of the chapters of the fathers that really kind of hammers home this point. Uh, the Mishnah is in the end of chapter six. And it's a story about this rabbi, Rabbi Yosef ben Kisma, and he is traveling on the road, and he meets someone, and there's this fateful encounter. And the person says, he greets the rabbi, and the rabbi greets him in response. And the person tells the rabbi, Rabbi, from what place are you? Where do you live? And I tell him, this is the rabbi talking, from a great city of scholars and sages, I am. That's where I come from, like a city full of Torah scholars. So he says to me, Rabbi, would you be willing to live with us in our place? This, this is a booster. He's like, come move to us. We, our city could use a rabbi as talented as you. I would give you a million dinars of gold, precious stones and pearls. He's giving him a big signing bonus. Come join our city. I said to him, even if you were to give me all the silver and gold and precious stones and pearls in the world, I would not dwell anywhere except in a place of Torah. And so it is written in the book of Psalms by the hand of King David, better for me is the Torah of your mouth than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. Not only that, but also at the time of the departure of a person from this world, they do not accompany the person neither silver nor gold. All the gold in the world doesn't help you once you're dead. 
uh, but rather Torah study and good deeds. That's the only thing that accompanies someone to the next world. As it says, and it quotes a verse, when you walk, it shall guide you. When you lie down, it shall guard you. And when you awake, it shall speak on your behalf. When you walk down, it shall guide you in this world. When you lie down, it shall guard you in the grave. And when you awake, it shall speak upon your behalf. It's in the world to come. So basically, there's an encounter and there's an offer. And the rabbi meets someone and the person tells him, I want you to move to our city. And he tells him, no matter what you offer me, I'm not going to move to your city because there's no Torah scholars there. And of course, the obvious question is, and then he says, well, when you die, all you have is Torah. And therefore, I cannot abandon my city. And the question is, wait a minute. He's not telling him. He's not offering him, come move to our city and stop studying Torah. He's saying, come move to our city and, and, and be the rabbi of the city. And he tells him, because there's no other scholars there, because the society is not one that is conducive towards Torah study, what I'm essentially doing is I'm opting for the gold and abandoning the Torah. What this is telling us is that social influence and the way it affects a person, it's not just a minor aspect of what how a person behaves. Rather, it's the number one factor in determining the success of someone's spiritual journey. He's telling him, in effect, that if I were to follow you and go to this city, invariably, I'm going to have to suffer at my Torah scholarship and my good deeds and my uh, righteousness is going to dip. And therefore, I'm opting for gold instead of Torah. And that's a bad, that, 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 that's a mistake because when you die, all you have is Torah. What he's essentially indicating here is that he can almost guarantee that being exposed to people who are not quite on the same level as the one in his current city, that is going to necessitate a dip. And I think just to finish here, really there's there's a lesson here uh, with Rebecca and with this episode. Uh, number one, it's th- we see this great rabbi. He's trying to, at all costs, avoid situations where his society is not going to help him ascend the spiritual ladder. Uh, number one, so you avoid those situations and you embrace the city that's going to be conducive to growing in righteousness. That's an ideal. And what if someone, and invariably we are in certain, to a certain degree going to be exposed to bad influences. And there's various kinds of bad influences. There's influences of, of people that you admire, people that you love, people that you fear, and the society. We have to harness the quality of Rebecca, our matriarch, and with uh, resolute tenacity, uh, resist and man- maintain our independence and ensure that we are not negatively influenced. A very powerful lesson from this second verse in our Parsha.